from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio, New Year's Eve edition. If you're listening to us in San Antonio on 1200 WAI, it's 11 p.m. And we have an hour that will take you all the way through to New Year's. If uh, you happen to be listening on the East Coast, Happy New Year to you. Uh, I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year Internet security veteran. And uh, with us this evening, I have Ed Shaw, a former FBI agent and a certified information privacy professional now. He's helping uh, businesses figure out their privacy policies and how to protect all that information that's out there. Thank you for joining us, Ed. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So on this uh, discussion we're going to have tonight, we'll go through uh, some of uh, your former life back there at the the FBI investigating cyber crimes. Uh, So this should be an exciting uh, topic and uh, some fun stuff to... uh, dive into. Can you share a little bit more of your your background and how you uh, got to sitting down here with us today? Well, on the uh, topic of my work on investigating cybercrime, that primarily came from my FBI assignments overseas. I had two different overseas assignments, both of them at the FBI liaison office at the American Embassy in Tokyo. And in those cases, uh, the first assignment was 99 to 2004. That was just the beginning of where cybercrime was something that the FBI found it had to follow and investigate internationally. My second assignment was 2009 to 2012, and cybercrime was a much bigger issue internationally, at least between the U.S. and Japan, and uh, certainly between the U.S. and many other countries around the world. So... uh investigating over there um, from the the Japanese office are you working with US multinational companies and and American interests are you helping the Japanese try to figure this stuff out as well uh, it, it was more the latter working with the Japanese and just by background the reason the FBI has liaison offices and they have probably over 70 now At the time of my second tour in Japan, there were 56 overseas liaison offices. The reason to have those offices is crime goes international. Uh, You have a a fugitive that goes to another country. You have a criminal that sends money stolen overseas to a foreign bank account. Uh, All kinds of things happen internationally, and the U.S. only has jurisdiction, the FBI only has jurisdiction within the U.S. territory. When it goes overseas, you have to get the authorities in the overseas jurisdiction to assist you in the investigation, and there are a multitude of ways that can happen. As you, you begin a, a, the tale of a cybercrime, so if I'm a, a medical practice in San Antonio, Texas, and mm-hmm. I get hacked, my records get stolen, those records pretty quickly leave the U.S. soil, as you say, or that the criminal right. that actually stole your records may never right. have physically set foot on U.S. soil. So this, right. this is how those liaison offices tie in? Right. And to expand on your example, let's say uh, there was an indication based upon an investigation in the U.S. that the records went to Japan. So the FBI office here in San Antonio would contact the FBI liaison office in Tokyo, and we would immediately reach out to the Japanese law enforcement 
and or intel authorities, depending upon what kind of an investigation it was, and asked their assistance. We'd tell them what we know. We'd say, gee, it looks like it went to this person, this business, this domain. Can you check it out? So with the the role of uh, the FBI kind of uh, outside, it seems like this is likely more important now than, than ever. Are they continuing to add um, field offices or liaison offices, as I think you called them, uh, overseas? Oh, yes. Um, just to give an example, during my first tour uh, over at the uh, office in Tokyo, which was 1999 to 2004, the Tokyo office covered Japan, but it also covered South Korea, and it covered Taiwan. And uh, during my second tour, by that time, the FBI had opened up an office in Seoul, Korea, so the FBI office in Tokyo, Tokyo no longer covered South Korea. And then the FBI opened up an office in Beijing, so then uh, that covered relations, FBI relations with Taiwan. Uh, it was no longer Tokyo. So yes, there's, there's uh, a, an ongoing effort to expand, and even if there's one office in a country, for example, Australia, there's an office in Canberra, the capital, but there's a sub-office that was added after Canberra was open, and that was in, uh, in Sydney, the largest metropolitan population center in the country. So if you'd like to work for the FBI, you can uh, just found out that there's chances for you to uh, work in all sorts of interesting cities all around the world. All around the world. Most of the work is still domestic, but uh, there are opportunities overseas as well, yes. So in a cyber crime investigation, I mean, as I've seen these kind of pop up over the news, you'll see potentially this go both directions where the business is actually calling the FBI saying, hey, I think something's happened to me. Um, it, it's also true that sometimes your phone rings and it's the FBI telling you, we've seen records that we believe were stolen from your business pop up in this location. That, that's correct. Uh, a company, uh, a target, a, a victim, whether an individual or, or an entity like a business or a nonprofit or something, they may find out they've been, uh, been a victim of, of a cyber crime of some type. Uh, also, the FBI, uh, when it's investigating uh, you know, a, a cyber crime, of course, you dig into the details and you'll find that uh, perhaps other people as well were targeted and they weren't aware yet. So the FBI has an obligation to tell all victims of a crime they were a victim of a crime and, and advise them of any information it can share. So if, if you're a business and you had thousands of records stolen and the FBI determines they were stolen from you, are they going to contact you or to potentially do they go contact all thousand of those individuals as well to let them know that their information was leaked and as part of something? Uh, normally the entity that was the victim of the cyber crime directly. So if you're a, a business holding lots of records for lots of individuals, uh, but the indication is that businesses' uh, electronic records were accessed illegally, criminally, because the FBI is only a criminal investigative uh, organization. They'll contact the business. Uh, the FBI doesn't have any indication in that kind of a case beyond that to indicate any of the holders of those individual records or people whose information was in the records were victims of crimes. That has to be developed through investigation and coordination 
with the business that was holding the electronic records. So just one shot, one stop shopping, so to speak. Yeah, and I think that's uh, helpful and for business owners to understand is that they're going to come to you, they're going to work with you, they're going to figure out um, what's happened, help you with some understanding there, so that you can then talk with your attorneys and your information privacy professionals. Uh, if you don't have one, you should consider talking to one um, and kind of getting somebody scheduled. We had a, a discussion with uh, Robert Ottenreith, who does breach and a uh, data uh, breach consulting, where picks up that day zero phone call for folks. And um, these are relationships we really recommend uh, businesses get in place ahead of time, not after the right. fact. Is um, Here, you're going to be, as a business owner, obligated to go out um, in almost all states um, to notify those individuals or other business partners that you have that uh, you've been breached and that their information was potentially leaked in that breach. Right, right. And I'll put in a plug right now in, in terms of getting what you mentioned there, getting the relationships in place ahead of time. Uh, and many of your listeners, and you're probably aware of this, the FBI has a program called InfraGuard, which is for people in private industry to have relationship with uh, the FBI field office nearest to where they have their business. InfraGuard, it's meant to guard infrastructure all the way from electronic to power plants to physical facilities, and anyone pretty much can be a member of that. Uh, there's uh, a background investigation, which is primarily to be sure you're not on a list of uh, individuals considered to be uh, uh, a risk, according to FBI or other government agency files. But uh, that's one way to be uh, be in the loop, and there are meetings and events, and you get to know people at the FBI office. And the whole point is, one of the big points is, a victim, when they, they, they're not sure where to turn, they have a name they can call and get in touch with, find out what to do. And can you go ahead and spell InfraGuard for our listeners? InfraGuard, of course, for those of you who won the spelling bee in school, is not spelled as you might think. Spelling is I-N-F-R-A-G-A-R-D, and the tagline is, all that's missing is you. There you go. So yeah, guard, G-A-R-D, no G, no, not spelled G-A-U-R-D, G-U-A-R-D. Yeah, so right. this is just G-A-R-D at it for guard. Correct, uh, correct. Yeah, see, so the uh, vowel directions there in the, the word guard, you don't have to worry about, there's just an A. So... Uh, I think that's a, a great thing to recommend that folks get involved, in, especially if you happen to be a, a security professional and you're listening to this and you had not heard about the InfraGuard chapter. Uh, this is another uh, good place to go um, meet and discuss these topics uh, in person. Uh, there's chapter meetings, as, as Ed mentioned, uh, around the areas. You, uh, if you just popped on to 1200 WAI, you're listening to CyberTalk Radio headed into New Year's Eve. I'm here with Ed Shaw, a former FBI agent and information privacy professional. Uh, we're talking through uh, cybersecurity and uh, what happens uh, when criminals uh, do bad things. Uh, Ed, thanks for again for joining us. And, My pleasure. Uh, so uh, aside from uh, Tokyo, where else did you get to spend time overseas? Uh, well, when I was in Tokyo, as I referred to earlier, we covered Korea and Taiwan, so I spent uh, primarily, I, uh, Taiwan, I covered Taiwan during that tour. I got down there around 12 or 13 times. Really enjoyed working with uh, the authorities there. I had also a three-month assignment uh, at uh, the FBI liaison office in Australia and the uh, capital there in Canberra. 
and uh, those have been the primary places outside of the country where I've been assigned with the FBI. So uh, working that uh, sort of Pacific Rim there, this is where we see um, a good amount of these cyber attacks coming from. And I think uh, there's been discussion that both the attackers are actually there um, and in those countries, and then also um, I think those countries have had the perspective that they're victims in a lot of cases. They just have a lot of servers online, um, just like everyone. They're struggling to secure them. So they end up just being a bouncing point for an attacker that could be in Eastern Europe or could be even back in the United States, but has bounced all around the globe to create this trail of breadcrumbs for the the authorities to have to go try to trace back through. Right, that's correct. And uh, in a in a case where, let's say, there's been an unauthorized access or intrusion here in the U.S., and the last stop before it came to the U.S. was Japan. We get with the authorities there, and based upon my experience, uh, it was it was very, very rare that a cyber attack or cyber crime would initiate in Japan. Criminals there, for whatever reason, they're just not doing that, at least targeting the U.S. It was coming from Eastern Europe. It was coming from Russia, Korea, North Korea, uh, because uh, the North Korean government uh, is sponsoring uh, some kinds of cyber crimes targeting the U.S., but we get assistance from the Japanese authorities. Yeah, I think there's um, rumors, implication, uh, the who knows exactly for sure, but that the the North Koreans were involved in the hack of Sony. Um, mm-hmm. if, had you have been serving at that point in time, you may have uh, had some interesting <laughs> discussions there. I think that was right. post your, your tour over that, there. That was after. Yeah, that, uh, the, those are the kind of things that Ed's talking about, and some of the you folks may have heard of that, the that Sony hack over the last couple of years, that one made some big news here all across America, um, getting all of that email exposed inside the oh, corporate yeah. mail servers. Yeah. Uh, so uh, going through these type of situations, so um, flip onto your hat now trying to kind of prevent some of these things more up front as an information privacy professional. Uh, what are, do you have some recommendations for folks of, of, what they should be doing to safeguard information, um, maybe websites they should be reading, looking at, or um, things that, that a business owner should think about with storing information that needs to be kept private. Well, I'll, uh, I'll just flip. Your listeners can't see this, but I think a lot of people do this now. I have my laptop, and you can see I have a little sticky piece of paper covering the camera. And ever since cameras got to be built into laptops, even though I'm not a real strong technical professional, I've always been doing that because I knew from agents I'd work with the people can get in and turn on your camera remotely. And still I run into people who don't realize that that can happen. Uh, The other thing, just on a basic level, I found when people are setting up either a new IT system or adding enhancements, They look at the costs, and a lot of people are tempted to economize on the security side uh, for two reasons. There's there's a cash outlay of of some type, and businesses have to make a profit, and that comes right out of the bottom line. But uh, for another reason, it's just more effort. It slows down sometimes what you do or adds steps to what you do. And I'd say resist that temptation because the the only difference uh, between a business that uh, 
has been hacked and uh, and doesn't know it and has been hacked and does know it is is just awareness. Everybody's been hacked. You really need to have those security features and and those should be the first thing you ask about anything IT. Yeah. Uh, just like uh, some of the stats that I'd like to share on how much this is actually going on, how how often it, it's happening, and, and what that real rate of increase is. Uh, PwC, they've got a, a good security practice, and they, they did a big study um, last year showing that we went from 3.4 million reported incidents in 2009 up to 59.1 million reported incidents in 2015. So, uh, and I think if you look at the trend lines in 2016, it's going to be above that 59 million number and still continuing to grow at a rate um, that is somewhat really frightening. I think uh, the more I've been hosting this program and, and talking with folks out there, as you said, I think there's, there's two types of people um, that have had a security incident, those that know they have and those that do not know that they have because the attackers are just inside. Right, right. And I'd like to emphasize, you talked about reported incidents and those numbers from PwC. Uh, nobody knows how many incidents aren't reported. Rule of thumb, I'd say probably uh, you have at least as many unreported incidents as you do reported incidents. And just to give an analogy, it used to be banks would not report matters of embezzlement or, or inside theft, which is a big problem. Then uh, Congress passed a law many decades ago saying federally supervised banks had to report to the FBI every suspicious incident, and the numbers shot way up. A lot of uh, cyber incidents, I'm sure, are not reported. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it, it's it's a hard one. And on the the episode of, of Cyber Talk Radio uh, that we had Robert on, we did a uh, fake scenario where I was an IT person uh, and went through the phone call to to Robert about day zero breach. And uh, I mean, one of the questions I asked was, well, can I just plug the server back in so that my business can run today? Like, I haven't even told my boss about this yet. I'm afraid that if I tell my boss, I'm actually going to get fired as the IT guy because he's counting on me not to get us hacked. Um, if you wanted to listen to that uh, previous episode or any others, you can listen on iTunes. Uh, we're also on Pocket Casts. Uh, as well as a YouTube channel. And you can find uh, more about all of those at www.cybertalkradio.com. After the uh, bottom of the hour here, let's see if we can dive into maybe some longer uh, examples and stories about some of the things that uh, Ed has worked on uh, with the FBI, how uh, you coordinate across uh, multiple countries and into uh, maybe a hypothetical investigation. We'll see uh, how real we can go ahead and get. Uh, at, so in Japan, uh, just for uh, our listeners, uh, what was your uh, favorite thing about living uh, over there? Oh, gee. You know, Japan's a great country. Uh, before the FBI, I lived there a total of six and a half years and learned the language during that time. And uh, I, I'd say, and I'll limit this to Tokyo, for big cities in the world, I have traveled around to a few if I had to live in a big city, and I really don't want to, I'd pick Tokyo first, and for one reason, everything works. The trains are on time, the subways are on time, everything's clean, crime is very low, everybody's very orderly. Uh, I'd say that's one of the great things. Compared to New York or, or London, you know, which can be kind of chaotic, 
uh, to a lot of people. So everything works. Yeah. The, in my time, I spent some over in Tokyo uh, going around the world talking about OpenStack. And uh, one of the things that surprised me on my, my first trip into Tokyo was uh, how many parks there are in the city. I think when you see Tokyo on TV from America, they're always showing the electronics district and it's packed right. sidewalks with people that are super crowded everywhere and all these bright lights and karaoke bars. And it seemed like as we went around the city on the subway um, and popped out at a stop, there was a park like near every subway stop. Yep. That, that comes, those are in the central districts, and that comes from the feudal areas. Japan modernized. A lot of the old feudal estates were taken over, and uh, they kept a lot of the gardens from those estates. Uh, when you get out into the newly developed suburbs after the war, you have more limited park area per person, but in the central districts, you've got plenty. So uh, now as a, an information privacy professional, uh, what, what does a privacy professional do? I think maybe many of our listeners out there um, have not thought about needing to understand this before, so I think we can start from kind of ground zero a little bit and educate them. Okay. Uh, I'll talk, uh, let me start with my experience at the FBI working in that matter. And this was in 2006 and 2007. I worked at FBI headquarters in a unit that uh, was called the uh, Security Compliance Unit. And its main purpose originally was to make sure that if there was any loss or mishandling of classified, confidential, or internal federal government information in the possession of the FBI that the matter got rectified. But as some of your listeners may recall around that time, 2005, 6, 7, there were some federal government incidents where lots of uh, personally identifiable information for federal employees or, uh, or former federal employees got lost. A laptop, I think, from, uh, from the VA uh, was lost with several million names. At that time, the FBI realized they needed to also assess each incident in terms of was there any personally identifiable information. And so that became a big focus. So information classification. Right. Yeah. Can you go ahead and define <laughs> that for our audience as well? And two easy steps? No, but I'll, I'll, make, it, uh, I'll make it quick and dirty. Uh, you have generally, uh, you have confidential information. You have secret information, and then you have top secret information. And if you think of it like a pyramid, confidential being at the bottom, that has the widest amount of circulation, the least amount of protection. So that, that could be a name, a phone number, a home address? Uh, this, you also have to make the distinction between a criminal investigation and a counterintelligence or national security investigation. When you're in criminal investigations, Generally, unless you're dealing with a spy case or espionage, you don't deal with confidential, secret or top secret. Uh, it still needs to be kept inside, but different laws apply to it. Um, but uh, it could be if you have the name of a person who's provided information about a suspected foreign spy, that information would probably be secret, depending upon the circumstance. It could be confidential. Uh, as you get to secret, the protections get greater the uh, distribution gets more narrow, but they're still handled in the same types of channels. When you get to top secret, you're making a jump in the sense that 
you go to a completely different method of handling, storing, and, uh, and transferring that information around. Yeah, you no longer email that top secret information. Uh, you do internally on an internal network. You yeah. can do that, but uh, but it it would none of the confidential on up none of it touches what is called a, an unclassified network. Uh, the only thing that would go and information is sent around. It's still internal information on a network. It's called SBU, sensitive but unclassified, which means it still shouldn't go outside. But the distribution is so wide that. Uh, you need to use a less secure method, and the risk is fairly low. Yeah. So you're listening to Ed Shaw, a 25-year mm-hmm. FBI agent. Uh, we're talking uh, cyber crime investigation, information privacy. And uh, after the bottom of the hour break on Cyber Talk Radio, we will uh, go into some deeper uh, stories to lead you on into the new year. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm here with Ed Shaw, a former FBI agent, and uh, 25 years there with the agency, correct, Ed? That's correct. And uh, we're discussing heading into your New Year's uh, Eve party, and uh, to close out there with the ball drop here at midnight, uh, we're going to go through a uh, scenario now um, talking about a past investigation. So uh, you worked in Tokyo at the FBI liaison office there in uh, Japan and uh, working with the Japanese government and their authorities to help uh, track down international hackers. So let's uh, go through uh, an example. Um, we've, we've got one that you can go ahead and talk about a little bit, so I'll kind of hand off here to you to tell the story. Okay, well, this one... Uh, started in the FBI New York field office. There was a criminal uh, cyber investigation and it was a matter where there was a criminal group uh, international in in multiple countries and they were stealing personally identifiable information and other information uh, about companies and bank accounts and things like that. That could be traded online. And uh, so that the New York office opened up that investigation, pulled the thread, found out it involved several countries in Eastern Europe. Uh, Bulgaria was one of them, Russia was another, there were a few more. Uh, and uh, as they pulled the thread some more, they found out there was a, as they say in New Jersey, a perpetuator in uh, Tokyo as well. And so the New York office, in addition to contacting uh, FBI liaison offices in uh, in Europe. Uh, they contacted us, and uh, we went forward to uh, follow up on that. We had some information. It led to, it was actually fairly detailed. It led pretty much to an apartment, the information that we got from the New York field office. Then we had to figure out who has the authority in Japan to handle this, uh, we ultimately figured it would be handled by the Japanese as a law enforcement matter rather than a national security matter. And so we contacted the police. They decided the apartment was within the jurisdiction 
uh, the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department, or TMPD, and so we worked with the TMPD to find out more information about the person who was using that computer. It turned out there was a, a young couple, husband, wife, and a child, a toddler, two or three years old, living there. The police got us that information. Everyone in Japan has to be registered with the government for tax purposes. We found that out. We found out the husband was a Filipino national, uh, but the wife was a Japanese national, and so the child was also probably at that time had dual Filipino-Japanese nationality. And uh, we got ready. We gave all that information to New York, and New York said, great, just stand by. Keep them, keep them in a holding pattern there if you can. Well, that's easier said than done because uh, the Japanese are a little worried they have someone in their jurisdiction committing a crime. Now, on the one hand, all the information indicated the victims were outside of Japan, so the police could relax somewhat uh, while they weren't taking any, any action. But on the other hand, at any time, they could go ahead and start targeting victims in Japan, and then they're on the hot seat. Why didn't they protect Japanese nationals from from victimization by criminals that were known to them. So that took a while uh, to get things settled out and it, it was important to give them updates all the time. That got to be difficult because we wanted to give them updates about other countries. Well, other countries were giving information to the FBI, but general practice in international investigations is if Bulgaria gives information to the FBI, the FBI can't share that information with a third country unless Bulgaria gives permission. So to keep the Japanese up to date, which is, in a, yeah, it's their jurisdiction, we have an obligation to do that, there was a whole long process. Of course, New York didn't see the reason why we needed to get all this information from them, and so we had to kind of be stroking the New York office as well. Uh, and uh, it got up to the point where we were ready for what's called the takedown. We're gonna arrest folks. And, uh, uh, there are shows on on TV, different uh, different cable channels. They'll talk about FBI takedowns or things like that. If you have a takedown with multiple locations, it's very important to coordinate. So the takedown goes in the sequence you want, or it goes all at the same instant. The purpose being to prevent anybody from alerting anyone else who's also going to be arrested that something is happening. Yeah. No one evidence destroyed. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, and evidence destroyed as well, and subjects fleeing. And uh, if there is any indication that any of the subjects might be violent, if they get into a state where they're destroying evidence or they're fleeing, the chance for violence increases. You want uh, you want to avoid that if you can. So, imagine just in one city, it's it's complicated. You're working with the county police, the city police, the FBI, maybe ATF as well. And then imagine if you're working with multiple states, then you have other jurisdictions added multiple time zones in multiple states. Now make it all around the world. So you have time zones, not just two or three hours, but 12 or 13 hours. So there is a lot of work, uh, a lot of coordination, and ultimately it was decided the takedown would start in Tokyo, because then Tokyo would be the earliest you go eastward if you take down in Tokyo at uh, seven in the morning, you get to Eastern Europe, it's still two or three in the morning or maybe midnight. 
and uh, and so it's there's a less of a chance people are going to be online or doing things or getting information or the news will get out to the wires or things like that so uh, that got to be important you also have different jurisdictions when you can do a takedown when you can do an arrest because in the US for example if you're going to do a search warrant you can only do it at certain times you can't be going at 3 in the morning unless you show really good reasons that unless you do the someone will be hurt or evidence will be destroyed etc it's I think six or seven in the morning something like that is the earliest you can do it so all of those things uh, all of those different factors had to be kind of put into a matrix and lined up that took a couple months and uh, finally everything was ready uh, one thing and and I'm not sure why they wanted this but the New York office wanted it probably because it was the first place to have the takedown go. They wanted to have one of the FBI agents, there are only two at the FBI liaison office in Tokyo, they wanted to have one of them at the location where the arrest occurred. The Japanese police didn't want anyone who wasn't part of the Japanese police anywhere near there. That took a couple weeks. And, and that's very reasonable when you're law enforcement, you, you just don't want outsiders. They don't know your protocols, your procedures. And in Japan, if you have especially this neighborhood, but most neighborhoods, it's a very ethnically homogenous society. And if you have a foreign national walking around, and the, the person who was going to go was the assistant, he's six foot tall and blonde-haired, blue-eyed, it, it just puts people on alert that something different is happening. And if you're a criminal and you see something different, you're going to go straight to ground, run for cover. We finally got all of that worked out. He was about a mile away in a... Uh, kind of like a, a van that they use for a mobile command post. And uh, and we got the first arrest taken. And then it, it worked like clockwork, followed uh, followed eastward, followed the sun, so to speak, went to it was two or three countries in Europe. There's Bulgaria, Russia, one other country. Then it went to uh, Canada uh, and then New York. And we were amazed. It all went that well. Yeah, oh, and, and, that, and that took months of planning as you said months and, of planning months of planning i think we'll we'll uh, after we discuss this a little bit more kind of dive into some of the obstacles maybe in months of planning and um now with the speed of cyber crimes uh, really the fbi and and other folks that want to stay on the side of good here need the ability to move more quickly than months in a lot mm -hmm. of cases right uh, right so uh on that type of act, the that um, takedown there, and that multi-country investigation. Uh, so, how did how did that go um, after the takedown and, and close out? Did did uh, like their extradition? Did those th sort of things happen, or the people get prosecuted in their own countries? Um, the answer to your questions are yes and yes. Yeah, and maybe uh, here, here's what happened in Tokyo. Uh, the, the subject in Tokyo, um, and this had to be determined before the arrest took place. Uh, fortunately, the Japanese police determined, based upon the information we gave them, and they used it to conduct further investigation, they were able to confirm they had enough evidence of criminal activity under Japanese law by that individual to arrest him on their own account. If they didn't have that, they would have had to get a provisional arrest warrant 
from the United States government, and that goes through a procedure under, generally under the U.S.-Japan Extradition Treaty. We avoided that. He was arrested, and really the Japanese were interested in prosecuting him, but not as much as we were, so they were happy, especially because the individual was not a Japanese national. They were happy to ex have him extradited to the U.S. Well, you, once you do that, uh, or, or start that process, that is a process where the FBI goes to Department of Justice, which goes to the Department of State, which sends a diplomatic communication to the Japanese, or to the American Embassy in Japan, which contacts the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which contacts the Japanese Ministry of Justice. I mean, it's, it's a whole long chain. Back and forth you go, you have to give your justifications. And the individual was ultimately arrested uh, on behalf of the U.S. Before that time, he had been arrested on, on behalf of the Japanese government and was maintained in custody under Japanese law. And uh, then you have the extradition procedure. He, uh, he waived, he had a right to a hearing, but he, he didn't really have that much money. He was, as soon as he got money from his crimes, he was blowing it on who knows what, fast woman, fast cars, all kinds of stuff. He didn't have a lot of money. He waived his right to extradition. So then he was extradited and actually went out to the uh, detention center. Uh, you have the U.S. Marshals come over and uh, they fly him back on a commercial aircraft. He had four marshals uh, to guard him, and he was taken back to the U.S. And being that he's not actually a Japanese citizen, does the, you, that chain you went through was U.S. to Japan. Do the Philippines get notified? Do they get involved? Or does the, since their citizen was living abroad, they don't have a say in, in that sort of affair? They would get notified by the Japanese authorities, the Japanese government. This is standard in diplomatic practice that one of their nationals in Japan had been arrested. And that's... And then there is, under, again, under multilateral international treaties and standards of practice, people from the uh, uh, Filipino consulate can go visit him in jail and assist him with legal representations. So that was done. But as far as the extradition, the Filipino government has no say in that whatsoever. That was all just between the U.S., Japan, and the individual involved. So you're listening to CyberTalk Radio on 1200 WAI. Uh, Ed Shaw has just told a story uh, in the past about a multinational uh, takedown um, across the Pacific Rim all the way through Europe and then back into closing out in New York City. If you uh, didn't hear that whole segment, you can listen to the replay of this program. Um, we air it uh, on Tuesday. It'll be posted on our YouTube channel uh, as well as iTunes and Pocket Casts. Um, and it was a really interesting story, so I encourage you, uh, if you liked the second half, you should uh, go ahead and pop in on Tuesday next week, and you'll be able to uh, hear the whole thing. So, um, Ed, going back to now, so you said it takes months to coordinate all of these activities. So there was a, a lawsuit here recently. Um, Microsoft um, and the FBI and a warrant and the Second Circuit Court said that um, if you wanted to get access to records on a Microsoft server outside of the U.S. that you needed to go work through one of those liaison offices um, in the country and have that country provide a warrant to Microsoft, not um, the FBI for servers outside of the U.S. Am I understanding what kind of that ruling was correctly? 
All right. Uh, what what up until that lawsuit by Microsoft, what the U.S. Uh, would do, and it, it was primarily law enforcement agencies, but if the U.S. brought a civil suit against a company and it had information stored overseas, if uh, whether criminal or civil, if the person that had, there was a warrant or a subpoena to turn over information, uh, if the person or company that received it controlled that information, whether or not the information was stored outside the U.S. electronically or not, if they controlled it, U.S. law was, in practice had been, they had to turn it over. And Microsoft, somebody on its cloud service, I think, had some information the uh, federal government wanted. They gave them a subpoena. Microsoft said, that's in Ireland. We can't give it to you. It went to court. It went to the appellate, the second uh, appellate circuit. And that court ruled, no, the company may control it, but the information is outside of U.S. jurisdiction. And although in some cases the U.S. government can attempt to control the information under international practice, they can still try and do it, the law that Congress has passed has not specifically said this applies outside of U.S. jurisdiction, so we're going to say no. Instead, what, my, what the uh, federal government agency needs to do is go to the Irish government and get the information. And if it's a criminal case, uh, and also a civil case if the government is a party, this is known as informally as a mutual legal assistance treaty process. That sounds complicated and time-consuming. It is complicated and, and time-consuming. Briefly put, it is simply an official request from the U.S. government uh, again, this will kind of retrace a little bit of what happened in extradition. If it's the FBI wants information, the FBI goes to the DOJ, it goes to the Department of State. In the information in the Microsoft case, it was in Ireland. Uh, Department of State goes to the U.S. Embassy in Dublin, Ireland, the capital. In uh, Dublin, the embassy there, the American embassy goes, probably the uh, Ministry of Justice in Ireland, which then will determine if they will provide that information to the U.S. government based upon the treaty between the U.S. and Ireland. So uh, as you, you look to uh, trace these trails of breadcrumbs, if now you've found that there was maybe information on that server in Ireland that led you to now need to get data off of a server in Germany that was also a server above a U.S. enterprise, now you're potentially weeks or months of process to now go make that request for a server in Germany? That's, uh, that's correct. Uh, however, there is a little good news. It depends upon the foreign country to which you are sending that request. Some countries are very formalistic. Uh, Japan is one of those. They want every T crossed, every I dotted, every step taken. Other countries, and this is U.S. Department of Justice policy, uh, to encourage this, other countries will be more informal. For example, the country will, uh, they know what information you want. They're highly confident the treaty will allow the U.S. government to get the information. So they'll unofficially give the U.S. government the information. Now that can't be used in court, not because the other country won't allow it, but because the U.S. court won't take it. It, it isn't authentic evidence. There's yeah. no, no, uh, chain of custody, et cetera, and I don't want to bore your audience with that concept. But um, 
So at least for investigative purposes, some country, UK is one country, Australia is another country. Now those countries, Canada is another country. All of them are based on the common law, uh, shared legal tradition, very familiar with how other countries work, very close working relationship in any event. And so you can have lots of informal information shared for investigative purposes. So while you're waiting to use it in court, you've already got it so you can go and run your investigation. But other countries, they're, they're not so comfortable doing that, and you may have to go through the entire laborious process. Yeah, so for your cyber criminals listening out there, uh, <laughs> there's some jurisdictions you can hide in better than others. Uh, but I think that uh, the, the, the truth behind a lot of that is that uh, this is a, a complicated landscape, um, and there's going to continue to be more uh, cooperation between governments uh, across the world as... Um, this uh, type of attacks on industry and business move from physical um, attacks to these cyber crimes. Uh, the laws and the lawmakers and the policymakers and the uh, folks out there doing uh, diplomacy are going to spend more of their time talking uh, about cyber policies than they are about physical policies. And a lot of those, as you saw, was uh, Ed walked through the extradition of an individual. That's very well documented, very well thought out, that's been discussed for hundreds of years now between different countries, uh, and those things have been worked out. Now they're going to be spending time and energy working out these cyber policies, so um, hopefully we see a, a peak in the cybercrime wave, um, and with the cooperation of, of authorities uh, across the world, um, that the cybercrime will start to go down, um, I think. Even as that's going on, it's still on each of us as individuals, as businesses, to go out there and, and protect ourselves. Uh, I mean, crime's going down all across America if you look at all of the broad stats, but I still have a lock on my front door. I have a security camera at my house. I'm still doing the things I should do to keep my home safe, and I think folks need to do the things to keep themselves safe online as well. Right, and, and when you talk about protecting yourself, uh, most people probably know, but I'll mention for any kind of a crime, if uh, there hasn't been protection, uh, then very often it's very hard to find evidence of the crime because you don't. if the door is unlocked, you don't have a picked lock. So you don't have the forensic evidence about what kind of tool is used for that. Uh, all, all kinds of things. If you don't have a camera, just in physical security, you don't have images of what happened or who went there. Uh, so any, any law enforcement agency if there's very little evidence, it's not that they're not going to follow up, but it goes to the bottom of the priority list because you can't make a case. If you can't make a case, the prosecutor won't take it. So it's very important to uh, protect yourself uh, first and foremost. Yeah, and make those, those steps where they have to leave the digital fingerprints behind. Right. They have to expose their digital tools right. um, to attack and hack your things and uh, out there, as uh, we've hinted around of it, as we uh, call the tagline here, from the dark web to your radio dial, uh, Ed had talked a little bit about marketplaces where information is bought and sold. These hacking tools are also bought and sold on those marketplaces, and uh, the authorities can see kind of who's been buying what tools and where they're getting used. So uh, if you have defenses in place and the hackers have to use sophisticated tools to circumvent it, it makes it uh, much easier to isolate who that attacker may be than if you just have a unlocked wide open front door with no camera on it. That's right. That's exactly right. So 
Uh, we're uh, about to close out here and head into 2017. So uh, do you have any thoughts or predictions for this, uh, for this next year for our audience? <laughs> I, um, gee, that's like for those of your listeners who remember the late, great Johnny Carson on New Year's Eve, he'd put on his, his kind of magician cap and he referred to himself as the great Karnak and he'd, he'd make predictions about the future. And uh, as your listeners may have also been aware, there's Yogi Berra, there's a famous quote, predictions are difficult, especially about the future, but I will say that there are gonna be more hacking attempts. Uh, there are gonna be more hacking incidents where lots of private information, a la the Democratic National Committee or, or other people, that's gonna be spilled all over the front pages and it could be anybody and, um, I think uh, the new administration for the president is going to be a big target. Whether they'll get through or not, I don't know. But if they possibly can, they will. Yeah. No, I think this is uh, heading into 2017. Um, I don't think we've seen the peak of cyber attacks. So that PwC number that I shared 2009 uh, earlier in the program up to 2015, I think the 2016 number is bigger. Uh, and I think that... Uh, We'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm going to coin toss, and I may get this one wrong. We, we saw a large-scale denial-of-service um, attack um, on the east coast of the U.S., and then it moved over to the west coast, and it kind of spread out all over the globe um, a couple of months back. Uh, I think that was a practice run. I don't think that was them really playing their full hand, uh, and I suspect we're going to see at least one major disruption of the Internet in 2017. So you've been listening to Cyber Talk Radio on 1200 WAI. Uh, we are here to wish you a happy new year. And Ed, thank you very much for uh, joining us and telling uh, the audience uh, some very interesting stories. Thank you and happy new year to you and all your listeners. <laughs>